Thought about wearing the cloak for this one, you know, old time's sake. But, eh. I mean, there's a reason I do this get-up nowadays and have for some time. No, what I do want to say, though, is this is your nice big spoiler warning. Because I'm not just going to be spoiling Kingdom Hearts 3, I'm going to be spoiling the entire franchise. It is effectively impossible to talk about Kingdom Hearts 3 at all. And I do mean at all, without spoiling the hell out of Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 and Coded and 358 and Birth by Sleep and Point Eight and Point Nine and 37 and Rejiggered. And... So the point is, I'm spoiling. This is your spoiler warning, and the off chance you care, be warned. <sighs> the other thing I want to mention, though, in brief, is that there are certain sections of this game that I just kind of look at and go, Huh? In fact, I gave a negative story when I was going through it. And I'll bring those up when we get there, but if you're expecting to hear me giving you the big in-depth analysis of exactly what happened, I threw my hands up. Final warning. This does not include Remind, or whatever it's called. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. The most obvious being that it wasn't requested. But there's also kind of an un, you know, unavoidable problem of the fact that Remind uh, not only isn't out yet, but doesn't even have an actual release date yet. It has a release window, winter, which is like, you know, it's four months, I think. Three months. Yeah, three months. Three months gap there that that could be, which uh, so far nothing's really come of it, and we haven't gotten any specific details. And, of course, most of Square's efforts lately have been towards FF14 and FF7R, so, yeah, with not even an ETA, I'm not willing to risk my schedule that much. Honestly, we're already going to do a stream of Remind and New Game Plus mode, so we'll discuss that then. For now, let's talk about Kingdom Hearts 3 proper. First of all, I do want to mention something that's going to not only paint a giant target over my face and get lots of egg thrown at me, but it's probably going to oust me as a horrible Kingdom Hearts fan forever. <clears throat> I think this is the best the gameplay the series has ever gotten, overall. There are some specific parts that are clearly inferior to previous games, and there are some specific parts that are vastly superior. I think that the mini-games are generally better presented in this one. I think the... <sighs> I tend to like action RPGs in general, but one of the most important things for me to enjoy an action RPG is what I generally call fluidity, or smoothness. I want to smoothly go from A to B to C to D in terms of movement, action, interaction, movement. I just want it to, to be a non-stop, wonderful undulation of flow, right? And that is Kingdom Hearts 3. This game plays wonderfully. I actually enjoy just playing this game. And frankly, the only other Kingdom Hearts game that I just sit down and enjoy playing is Kingdom Hearts 2. Now... I also mentioned gameplay as an aggregate. See, I've said for years that I felt Birth by Sleep had better gameplay, but 2 had better combat, and I stand by that statement. I would say, however, that's why I say as an aggregate, 3 tends to be superior to either of the other two. I love the forms. I love the uh, the keyblades changing around and, and doing different things and upgrading the spells. And I love the, the pseudo-flow motion that you've got going on. Um, I love the extra party members. I love the summons. The summons are great. I don't like the attractions, if I'm being completely honest. You know what the attractions are? The attractions are, oh crap, oh crap, I, quick. That's what the attractions are. 
Although I do like that there's an option now to turn that off, so that's awesome. Um, but yeah, for the most part, like I said, eh, I also love how the level design is far more open than it's ever been before. Now, this is mostly an aspect of hardware. I mean, we went from the PS2 to the the DS, to the, to the PSP, to the 3DS, and then to the PS4. So you can see how there's just a bit of a hardware jump forward in terms of overall capacity. But I do enjoy the openness of a lot of the areas. Obviously, they do a lot of the whole diving mechanic similar to Dream Drop Distance, but it's more than that. There's no point at which I felt I was cloistered or a little bit claustrophobic, and it also does better visual continuity than any other Kingdom Hearts game has done. I want to talk about that briefly. Because it's not something that comes up all that often when it comes to game design, but in my opinion is extremely important when it comes to game design. Uh, visual continuity is when you go from point from one zone to another zone, and you f in the game does something either in terms of design or background or skybox or rendering or whatever to make it feel like geographically speaking, you have gone from here to here, and you feel like you're right next to the point you just were. That's a degree of visual continuity. Uh, I've heard some people call it geographic continuity as well. Either way, this game does that fabulously. At just about any point in time, I could basically look at where I've been and where I'm going and have an idea where I am roughly within the overall presence of the zone, within the world, I should say. And that's awesome because that was absent in basically every previous Kingdom Hearts game. Kingdom Hearts 2 tried, but probably the best example of this being done kind of uh, is actually in Radiant Garden, or whatever you want to call it, in Kingdom Hearts 2, where you go from like the actual city to like the chasm, and you can see the city in the distance and the other castle in the distance, and then you go to like the next chasm where you can't really see anything, and then you go to the you know the, the Battle of the Thousand Heartless area, and then you're at the next castle. <laughs> like I, I, if you've played the game, you understand what I mean. How it just feels very jarring. It, it feels like what's actually happening is you go from here, and then you like teleport over here, and then you teleport over here, and you teleport over there. They tried to maintain visual continuity, but it didn't quite work. Three does a much better job of it. I also don't usually gush about graphics, but I think they did a very good job with this one. The most obvious thing being the, I forget what they called it, they have a filter that they apply to the graphics for each world dependent on the world, the most obvious one being Pirates of the Caribbean, which actually renders things in a slightly different way, and it's not just a color filter that goes over everything. Very wonderful stuff, very gorgeous stuff. I could just sit here and gush about the gameplay some more. But you're probably here to talk, wanting me to talk about the story. <sighs> so here's the thing. I do like the story of Kingdom Hearts as a whole, but I will admit, while Kingdom Hearts 3 was satisfying and was definitely a net positive, I, well, it was a Kingdom Hearts game. It was a typical Kingdom Hearts game. So, net positive rather than overwhelming positive, for me personally. I had to kind of ignore certain things, excuse me, and certain other things, travel, excuse me. But the parts that were good were actually very satisfying for me. Now, I'm bringing that up now because the first thing that happens is the game very crudely carries forward after Dream Drop Distance. And, oh, by the way, you're back to level one. Sucks to be you. Okay, sure, they do try to explain it a little bit. And we end up going to Olympus because we need to train... The first half of the game kind of sucks. I'm just going to go ahead and say that up front. That's part of why I gave that preface. 
Because the first half of the game, which is also the largest chunk of the game in terms of time, is do the Disney Worlds. Why? Because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go do the Disney Worlds. It's a Kingdom Hearts game. Go do the Disney Worlds. Now, this is nothing new, to be completely clear. My favorite example of this is actually Kingdom Hearts 1, where you do, in no particular order, you do Olympus, and then you do... Uh, Alice in Wonderland, Tarzan, and then you switch over, and then you go to, like, you know, Aladdin and uh, Little Mermaid, right? Peter Pan and Pinocchio. And you just kind of, it's just, there's some story elements there, but for the most part, it, you're just doing the Disney World. Then you hit Hollow Bastion, and the moment you hit Hollow Bastion, the story just kind of starts. The same kind of thing happens here. Kingdom Hearts 2 did this as well, by the way. The second, or I guess actually third, time you go to Radiant Garden, before you do the revisit of all the Disney worlds, that's when the plot starts in Kingdom Hearts 2. So we have the same problem here. And the problem is, while some of the worlds are enjoyable, it means the first half, or more than half of the game, is kind of filler. Which leads me to the next thing. Since I'm just painting targets on my face, I might as well keep going. Why is the Disney stuff still in this game? I know it's owned by Disney, that's not what I'm asking. I heard someone say once that it wouldn't be Kingdom Hearts without Disney. That the game needed Kingdom Heart, uh, needed Disney stuff to be able to stand on its own merits, and you know, blah 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 blah. Now I found myself thinking about that and thinking, that's interesting. Do you notice there's no Final Fantasy stuff in this? I mean, other than the obvious, you know, Cactuar and Chocobo and Ultros and all that. Other than the references and the Moogles, the Final Fantasy characters who were being woven into the narrative and were part of the story have mysteriously been completely ejected from the narrative entirely, to the point where they don't even have a cameo, never mind actual screen presence or re relevance in the story. Ienzo basically takes over as Sid slash Squall for the person we are interacting with back in Radiant Garden, for example. Now... That is very strange to me. The fact that they so thoroughly removed Final Fantasy characters from this. If I'm being honest to this very day, I suspect there's some corporate politics going on with this. And that probably led to this decision. The only statement we've gotten on the matter was from Nomura himself, who said, We don't need Final Fantasy characters. The, the, the game can stand up on its own. Okay, okay. Um, but the Final Fantasy characters were part of the narrative. And you deliberate, you didn't just remove them from the narrative, you removed them from, from the game. You Thanosed them, for God's sakes. So I'm pretty sure there's something else going on there. And you might be thinking, Laura, why are you bringing this up? Well, why didn't they do the same thing with the Disney stuff? Because they could have. It wouldn't even be that hard. <laughs> I mean, honestly. There are plenty of unique worlds within this franchise at this point that they could have gone to one of the actual Kingdom Hearts-specific worlds and instead of going to Toy Box. Let's see, so we got Toy Box, Monstropolis, San Francisco, Caribbean, Corona, Arendelle, and Hundred Acre Woods. That's six, right? Um, I'm pretty sure we could manage to make six unique and even new worlds if we wanted to in order to have the story develop to the point of actually you know, getting to the finale at the graveyard. It also would have meant that we could have been playing as Lee and Kyrie, rather than getting occasional cutscenes of them, which don't really mean anything because they don't lead to anything. Because even though Lee is totally awesome, as he usually is, Kyrie is a damsel in distress for no reason. Anyways. 
I've done enough complaining. Let me get to the Disney stuff. The filler! Um, I've decided after some thought, I, I want to do this in reverse order. So what I'm going to do, what I mean by reverse order is, is I want to talk about the worst first. I want to talk about Frozen. Arendelle is actually awful, in my opinion. Arendelle is the worst world in Kingdom Hearts 3 by far. It is at least in the running for the worst Kingdom Hearts world I've ever seen. Which is damned impressive, considering some of the competition it's going up against. Yikes. This is the first trip to Pirates of the Caribbean all over again. In Kingdom Hearts 2. Just, oh, okay. And I mean, it, it was made better in the remake, so in PS2 version original, with the, the terrible MIDI soundtrack and the lack of music and the awful not-quite-parodying of the movie. I've always complained about the parodying of the movie, which is funny because that's exactly what Arendelle does. As a quick aside, I, I, I just want to talk about this briefly. It has always bothered me how much they just decide to rehash the movies in these Kingdom Hearts games. They don't always do it. And in fact, in my opinion, every time they don't do it is when things are actually better. In fact, I can name three examples of that right off the top of my head. Toy Box, Monstropolis, and San Francisco. But here, no, it's frozen again. Except it's like, it's not even frozen again. They do this in Caribbean and in Arabelle. Uh, or, or, and a, Arabelle? Arendelle, excuse me. They do this in both Frozen and Ca parts of the Caribbean. Because in Frozen, we see like, I don't know, 20% of the plot of the movie? Like, it's not just a stage production half-assing of the movie. Huge chunks of it are just completely ejected. We don't even see Hans until, like, the end of the world. Excuse me, just before the end of the world. Not to be confused with the end of the world, which is a thing from Kingdom Hearts 1. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The end of the planet. And then we don't even actually interact with him until all of a sudden he's there trying to kill... What? Who is this guy? If you hadn't seen the movie, you would be completely lost. This is in addition to the fact that the world feels the least polished and the worst designed from a gameplay perspective. That damned maze, it's not the worst maze I've ever seen in gaming, but it's not the best, and also it's made by Larkseen? The lightning, you know, unarmed monk-type fighter decided to make... What? Now... I've seen a theory since then, and I've gone and reanalyzed it, especially this playthrough, and I have to admit that, yeah, no, I think this was supposed to be Elsa. I think that this story of Frozen was supposed to be us basically going up against Elsa as Elsa is descending into the darkness in her heart. This makes just about everything about the world make a lot more sense, including the boss who just kind of shows up out of absolutely nowhere, but also the ice palace, the ice maze, that is to say. Both of these elements, and there's other smaller points as well. You, you can find other sources about the theory if you want to go really in-depth with this. But there are several sources, including these two big things, that help to indicate that, yeah, no, it was probably supposed to be Elsa. This is also interesting because this would mean we would be divesting from the main plot of the game, which would be, or excuse me, the main plot of the movie, which would be awesome, but also the fact that they were trying to stretch out a little bit with the with the premise. Now, maybe they're... Well, okay, there's no maybe. We know with total certainty, because we have behind-the-scenes material, that the team, the development team of Kingdom Hearts 3, they had to reach out and coordinate with several other teams over at Pixar and over at Disney in order to kind of develop these things. And 
the reception was completely different depending on who they were interacting with. And we also know that the team they interacted with with regards to Frozen was terrible. Very restrictive, very uncooperative, very unhelpful. By total contrast, the team that worked on, say, Corona, which was also a you know a Disney property, was much more obliged to do things, even though they still kind of restricted them. And the teams that worked on Toy Box, Monsteropolis, and San Francisco, well, they were awesome, and they were fully cooperative and wanted to you know, be fully on board with helping out the Kingdom Hearts 3 game, so... You can kind of see how, once again, real life helped to shape this. I think the Frozen World could have been one of the better ones. Instead, it is absolutely the worst. Because I haven't even talked about the backtracking. There's a dirty word in game design. How many times do we go up and down that mountain? Five? I might be exaggerating, but it certainly felt like it. (sighs) And then there's even a part that this actively irritates me. Ignoring the fact that we just kind of skip 80% of the movie so we have no context for anything going on, they just pause the game to go and play Let It Go. Now, I actually like that song, which I know puts me kind of an outlier at this point in time, but that, no. (laughs) That's not how any of this should work. It probably doesn't help that it's played exactly as it is the song is exactly as it is from the movie. It's just, it's, it's as if you can picture the game pausing and then alt-tabbing over to the movie for the scene and then alt-tabbing back to the game and unpausing. This is not good game design. Which leads me to Corona. Now, I said we'd start at the worst. Frozen, negative to gameplay and negative to story. Corona, okay, we're doing better with Corona. Uh, the fact that they got several of the original actors involved, that was cool. The fact that they're trying to follow the movie, not cool. And the f- and, and again, once again, you'll notice that the movie plot being having large chunks ripped out of it kind of hurts the narrative as we're going through it. Uh, at the previous time, when I was playing this for the premiere run, I hadn't actually watched uh, Tangled. I wanted to call it Rapunzel. I hadn't actually watched Tangled. I have since watched it in preparation for this run. And yeah, there are several rather substantial points which, due to their absence, make the movie's retelling of it, well, bad. Corona, nevertheless, is saved in several ways because some actual attention to detail and legitimate passion is put into it. That's why it's nowhere near as bad as the Frozen World. I love going through the town, the actual kingdom of Corona, the number of NPCs, the number of just doodads and placements and all this. There is some wonderful Lindblom effect going on through the kingdom, and it was very enjoyable doing that. And I have to admit, at least thematically speaking, it kind of lines up a little bit better than Frozen ended up doing. I actually don't have that much else to say about Corona, since it was mostly just kind of there, which brings me, however, to Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, let me just start off by saying I am very impressed with what they managed, graphically speaking, with Pirates of the Caribbean. Good freaking job. They also gave us a ship, which is awesome. They kind of did something unusual with it, which I I understand why they did it, but it ended up being kind of frustrating more than anything. See, the Pirates of the Caribbean world is actually extremely short because, like, 80% of it is optional. Like, as soon as you finish the first series of cutscenes and a couple of fights, you're given the ship, and you could basically go and leave and conclude the world. 
I don't mean leave the world. I mean, like, go to the final battle and then you're done. You can just move on with it. The catch is the battle that you're about to fight is a heck of a level gain, and you're supposed to go and do optional stuff. You don't have to, but you're supposed to. You're supposed to go do optional stuff in order to level your ship, in order to get to the point where you can actually fight your way through there. But I did love... uh, They did a lot of smart game design decisions here. Probably my favorite is a very tiny touch. So flow motion's back into the game. I already mentioned that. When you're not on the ship, you can lock on and flow motion back onto the ship very quickly and at huge range, far larger range than you're supposed to because it's specifically coded to allow you to do it from farther range to make it quicker and smoother. Remember I mentioned that fluidity? To get back onto the ship and get back to the ship style of the gameplay. That's awesome. And that was good design. And... Ultimately, this section did feel kind of Assassin's Creed 4 in a good way. For, as, for all of the many praises I give Assassin's Creed 4, the biggest one will always be the fact that I can sail my ship to a spot, hop off of it, go do stuff, get back on my ship, and go. There's a... I don't know how to explain how awesome that feels. There's no load screen. There's no zone. There's no port or, or door I have to open. It's just hop off, go, come back in. And I can do it at whatever angle I want to because I can park the ship wherever, within reason. Same thing with this section. It was very fun to just sail around for a bit. I honestly, both playthroughs so far, I have not actually had the time I wanted to have to just roam around and have fun with it because the whole thing seems very, very enjoyable. And there's lots of, lots of stuff to do, especially for uh, getting materials and post-game stuff and all that fun stuff. Anyways. I haven't talked about the story of Caribbean. This is why this is still in the bad category, because the story is a weird... It's it's the same problem the other two stories have. They're rehashing the movie's plots, so first problem. But just like the other two worlds I've just mentioned, they're not only rehashing it, but most of it's going on off-screen. For the most part, we aren't actually seeing what happens in the events of the films. And I keep saying films because it's actually two and three kind of slammed into one here. So it's just kind of, here's Davy Jones, and here's Tia Dalma, and, and there's Jack, and we've rescued Jack. And and the the game will occasionally stop to basically whole-scale show a scene from the, the movie, and then it will just jump forward, and then we'll suddenly rejoin the events of the movie, like, 40 minutes in. It was very jarring. And again, if you hadn't actually seen Pirates 2 and 3, you'd probably be very lost for the most part, especially because there's no real context given other than a few vague clues. So, kind of a swing and a miss. But, I do want to mention something really quick. So, I haven't really talked about this. In Arendelle, that is to say, in Frozen, I'm just going to use the movie names if that's okay. In Frozen, we got Larkseen, who kind of hints at the idea of looking at Elsa, but doesn't really care. In Corona, we got Marluxia, who kind of hints at looking at you know, the, the evil of the curse, but it doesn't really care. In Caribbean, we've got... Oh, God, I can't remember. I know they changed how to pronounce his name, and every time I hear it, I'm thrown. I'm just going to call him Luxor. Does that cool with everyone? I know that's not how they pronounce it. We get <clears throat> Luxor. <clears throat> and he's kind of here, you know, curse, pirate ship, etc. But he doesn't really care, and he leaves. Are you noticing a trend? The thing is... One of the first worlds we go to is actually Toy Box, which I'll be mentioning later, uh, establishes early on that the enemy team, the Seekers of Darkness, the real Organization 13, they kind of have their own plans, but those plans have been drastically altered by virtue of the fact that they've found out 
they don't actually need to look after the new princes of heart or the old princes of heart. All that's just ejected. Now that's important because it means these initial seven worlds don't really mean anything to the plot, to the heroes, or to the villains. There's a vague theme of awaken the power of awakening, which it's mentioned several times running around and doing these worlds is not helping because that's not what actually helps Sora to gain that power. We get that in the final world. <sighs> he loves confusing names, doesn't he? And then there's the villains, who, again, don't actually care about the new Princes of Heart or anything going on, so they're just kind of hanging out, basically poking at Sora, or pushing their own side agendas, as we find out over the course of this. Uh, Luxor, Demix, Vexen, and arguably Larxene, and, of course, Zigbar all kind of have their own things going on, so... So, why are we doing this again? <laughs> it's not relevant to the characters. It's doing a disservice to the movies. And it's kind of not relevant to... I mean, I want to talk about Hundred Acre Woods before I move on to the final three. Hundred Acre Woods has been argued to be the most filler of all of them. I don't actually agree with that. Hundred Acre Woods is a very harsh, in-your-face demonstration of what it means to be growing up in the bad sense of the word because I want you to think really quick if you don't mind you don't have to tell me of course but I want you to think of anybody you considered a very close friend someone who you were very tight with when you were younger when you were in school who you haven't spoken to in years or decades I can think of three people like that right off the top of my head let's push that up to four uh, five, yeah, I haven't talked to her in forever. Six, I haven't talked to her in forever. A lot of these are female. <laughs> right? That's the Hundred Acre Woods. The minigames, it's there. It's inoffensive. And otherwise, the story relevance of the Hundred Acre Woods is relatively non-existent. But the main and most substantial point is what it's like to fade away in a literal sense and a metaphorical sense from your friendship and your childhood. And the way Sora takes that, you can tell that's really the intent there. When he first sees Pooh and Pooh's like, who are you? And, and Sora's just like, oh. And it just kind of hits him. Just, okay, that's right. I mean, right? And of course it serves as foreshadowing for the fact that Sora dies! Spoiler, I, I warned you! I warned you. Of course, Sora doesn't die, does he? We don't know what he does. I'll get there. I'll get there. <sighs> Periodically, we do see these little side things establishing where the actual plot will go. I already mentioned Vexen, Ienzo, Demix ends up working for the good guys. Luxord is important for some reason. Larkseen is important for some reason. Uh, Zigbar is doing what he always does. Uh, Lee is training, even though it never really matters. Kyrie is training, even though it matters even less. You know, we get little tidbits of what's going on bit by bit. Which me leads me, of course, to Toy Box. Now, Toy Box is actually one of the first worlds, and I already kind of established that point. But Toy Box is actually awesome. So now we're getting into the good worlds. For all of the fact that I complain about their existence, and I still think they should be objected, I did legitimately enjoy Toy Box, Monstropolis, and San Francisco. Absolutely, and without question. 
And I want to explain why, because it's really obvious there are three main reasons why. Reason Because all three worlds share this. Number one, we're not rehashing the plot of the films. Toy Box is an interquel in between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. In fact, it contains very small spoilers, or not spoilers, uh, foreshadowing for Toy Story 3, if you pay attention. Attack mode, you know. Uh, Monstropolis is a sequel to Monsters, Inc., so it happens after the events of Monsters, Inc., and San Francisco is a sequel to Big Hero 6 and happens after the events of the film. And the events of each of these are relevant. The changes to status quo at the end of Toy Story 2, at the end of Monsters, Inc., and at the end of Big Hero 6 substantially change the nature of the world we go into. And, that leads me neatly into point two, the events of the world we go through and, and the things we do there to try and help them out are specifically relevant either to the characters, theme, or main plot, in some manner or another. The obvious interaction with young Xehanort, duh. The obvious character interaction of Vanitas and Ventus, duh. The best scene in the entire game, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> and the obvious presentation of the idea of the duplicates, the replicants, and the way that working as a team accomplishes more than working as a solo unit does and the way we have to cover for each other. San Francisco. Every one of these hits these points, which leads me, of course, to the third point, and I've actually already said this. The developers who were working on Kingdom Hearts 3, when they reached out to the creators of these three films, they got resp positive response. They got help. They got aid. These people were working with them to help craft the story. And they didn't say, oh, you can't do this and you can't do this and I don't have time for you. Screw off. They were, just, they were much more positive and much more helpful. How apropos that when the teams worked together better, we got a better result. That, that sounds familiar for some reason. Toy Box was very enjoyable. It's got the, the mini-game thing. It's got, you know, the, the, the development of the idea. It's got a very, very creepy boss. Um, it's got the split worlds concept, which is something that's established, that, that kind of continues later. It's got the young Xehanort thing I've already mentioned, which is actually kind of awesome when everyone tells him to go to hell because he's an idiot. <laughs> I, I, I have so much praise for the Toy Box world, but I have to admit, I was already predisposed to liking it because the front yard of his house looks incredible. I said I wouldn't gush too much about the graphics, but there's two worlds that really impress me graphics-wise. One is Caribbean, for obvious reasons. The other is Toy Box for that front yard. Even when we, some of you may remember my old trailer analyses back for Kingdom Hearts 3 actually came out, I just spent time gushing about the attention to detail, about the scud, the scar, mar the scud marks, or the, you know, the the scuff. There we go, the scuff marks on the wood, or the fact that the stitches weren't linear on on the baseball, or the, the or the fact that the grass actually moved. There's just so much attention to detail; it blows me away. I love going through that section, and of course, very big and open, as Kingdom Hearts three does in general, which leads me naturally to Monsteropolis, where now, in addition to the fact that you know we're after laughter rather than. You know, screams. We also find out uh, we, we get to see a lot more of the factory that we never actually saw before. And while there is one bad boss in this section, I'm not going to excuse that. For the most part, the Monsteropolis section was just as enjoyable. So what's funny about the Monsteropolis section is it feels like an attempt to try and bring things to a more serious tint. As we go through it, we start off lighthearted. 
And then it kind of, you know, because, oh my god, we're monsters, woo! And then we kind of shift into, like, slowly, bit by bit, you know, Cerberus Syndrome comes into effect, and we get more and more dark, until finally Vanitas himself shows up, and I am Vanitas, and I am evil, and I am going to defeat you, and then... And then the best scene in the entire game happens, where, well, okay, maybe there's some that compete with it, but it's it's up in the running, where Sully is just like, boo, huh? And they grab him, they throw him into a door, grab that door, throw it in another door, grab that door, throw it in another door, and then feed the final door into the wood chipper. Even now, just thinking about it, it makes me laugh. I love that scene, completely unironically. That is so awesome. And it was a nice uh, pattern, because the point is, the the whole world had been kind of building the pressure of, of, of the seriousness and the darkness, and this is where it's going, and then, ah! <laughs> and all of a sudden they just do that. And the best part is, it's not even Looney Tunes logic. That all makes perfect sense within the confines of the, the, the rules that are established for the world. The pity of it is they never really used the doors the way I thought they would. I always figured the doors would kind of be tied into the main plot in some way, but they're just there. Yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter that much. Which brings me to San Francisco. It's hard for me to put a finger on it, but this was my favorite world. And again, it's hard for me to put a finger on why. I think it's because it gelled the most with Kingdom Hearts as, an, as a whole. Them seeing us and how we interact with each other leads to them wanting to study us so they can improve their own teamwork skills. We also have several cool, you know, uh, vehicle sections throughout the course of the, the world. And like I mentioned, it's a direct sequel which follows through on the events, which is directly relevant to the game because of the whole replicant thing, which leads to two Baymaxes once we're able to restore the replicant, which is also foreshadowing its own right, that we were able to take one of the replicants and actually fix it. I know it's not literally a replicant, it's the original Baymax, but you get the point. Also, we got the data cubes, the, uh, what do they call them, bugs, I guess they were called, back in Recoded. Yeah, those make a nice little return. Bunch of interesting stuff in that, which actually brings us to the end of the Disney section. Thank God, we can talk about the actual game now. Before we do that, though, so we get to the <laughs> we get to the Keyblade Graveyard, and what happens is a scene so bad, I wanted to give it multiple negatives. To this day, I hate this scene. In fact, I hate it so much, this is the scene I already mentioned where I just threw my hands up there. See, there's two really big flaws in Kingdom Hearts 3 for me. Flaw number one... So we go up, and we are just amazingly incompetent. Like, Aqua just stands there like an idiot. Aqua, one of the most powerful Keyblade Masters we've ever seen. Probably the, I'd say, third most powerful we've ever seen. Just just stands there like an idiot. And Riku is like, oh god, and then Donald completely wipes himself out to do Zeta Flare, which is very impressive, admittedly, but still. Um, you know, everyone's just, oh, we fail, we suck, we fail, we suck. And then we're die, die, and then we die. Game over. And then we go to the final world. Okay. So the first thing I dislike is the fact that there was a lot of cutscene incompetence to get us to this point. The next thing I dislike is that Sora dies, but doesn't, because he goes to what is effectively uh, limbo, is the, is the correct terminology there, I believe. So he's in limbo, the Kingdom Hearts equivalent of limbo, but he can't actually die because someone is clinging to him to the point where he can't completely dissolve even though Kyrie by all accounts, should be dead at this point. Let's, let's ignore that for a second. So we're in limbo, and we start to reconstitute ourselves. We also see Subject X and the Nameless Star here. I'll get to that later, okay? 
So we leave the final world, and then we go through a, a very irritating combat fight with the Lich, which is mostly about keep away. There's nothing difficult about it, it's just irritating. And then we fly back with Kyrie, and then end up back where we were at the past with no acknowledgement that time has been reverted. What? This whole sequence of events blows my mind. Because, obviously, they wanted to have the foreshadowing and the, late, the things of the final world with the Nameless Star and Subject X. Okay, I understand that. But other than those two elements and possibly the examination of what the final world is at all, this whole section is, in my opinion, completely wasted. Nothing deserves any. It's, it's, it's as if the game suddenly paused to go play a video about let it go and then come back to the game. I'm sorry, I'm being disingenuous. The point being, there's no reason for any of this. So it's not like this is cloud effect where I'll accept something stupid because it's to good effect. This is something stupid to get to bad effect. And then there's the fact that even though we've gone back to the same timeline and nothing has changed and no one knows we've changed, all of a sudden, we win this time. Even though nothing's altered. That's not how any of that works, and I hate that whole sequence of events. It's a good thing that the next thing that happens is one of the best sequences of the entire game. <laughs> so first, you know, we end up standing up against the Demon Swarm with all of the people from Kingdom Hearts Key, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, the mobile game. I was not on the list, sadly. But that's, that's a cool sequence powerful sequence and then of course it leads to the really awesome moments and I gotta say plural because what happens next is in my opinion probably the actual best scenes in the game but it's like a lot of scenes so it's hard to, to, to put it into just one because what happens next is we go and we end up fighting like like we div divvy up into parties and so we go help uh, what is it it's like Lee and Roxas against Shion and Marluxia I think I'm trying to remember how it divvies up. I know Luxord's there, because he's relevant. We'll talk about him in a moment. I know Zigbar's there. Uh, Syx. No, I think Syx is the one who's fighting alongside Shion. Yeah. As, anyways, the point being, each of the trios, you know, uh, that has been throughout the game, divvies up to fight a, a group of the enemy trios. And we actually get to fight them, and they are very fun fights. They have tons of unique abilities, and we fight them at the same time, and we've got our own party members who are trying to help us and actually are being part of the combat, and just... The whole sequence was amazing. The whole sequence was very, very fun to play through. Just from a gameplay perspective. Then we add on top of that it, that every time you beat someone, they get a little denouement scene. And each of those scenes were pretty awesome in their own right. Every single one of them was cool or interesting or fun to some extent or another. The one that was the weakest was actually Zigbar's, but that makes perfect sense. Don't worry, we'll talk about him later. So, you know, we see the final denouement for Issa, and, you know, Y and the subject X and his, his desires, and we see uh, Lark's scene, who's finally trying to let go of, of the bitterness and the vindictiveness, Luxord, who... Well, I'm going to bring this one up now. There are five, well, arguably six, counting the black box, there are six major mysteries remaining at the end of Kingdom Hearts 3. There could be more, but I, I think these are the biggest ones. There's the black box, which I'm not going to talk about because we have no information on it. It has to do with Lushu and the Master of Masters. Moving on. So of the five that remain, one of those is the wild card. Luxord 
I know, it's not how it's pronounced, gives Sora a wild card and says, it might be helpful sometime, in case you need it later, and then he pieces out. And of course, all of these, just about all of these, we part on amicable terms. Now, I like that because I've always liked the interpretation that most of these people aren't actually all that horrible, at least not when they're really themselves and not being influenced by the horribleness of Xehanort, right? So, that's cool, but what the heck is that wild card? Now, first and most important, I'm going to ask a lot of questions of you guys, by the way, so feel free to put these in the comments in order or all in one comment, however you want to do it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what is the wild card and will it ever come up again? I'd like to think it will. I'd like to think that the wild card is not just an abandoned plot thread, because there's like six of those in this game. I'd like to think that it's something that Sora will be able to use when he is in you know, Shibuya. We'll see. We do know that there's a bit of a shared you know, Nomura-verse thing going on here, but we know very little details about it. Unfortunately, I can't even guess at anything past that, so that's about as far as I've got with the wild card thing. <sighs> We see, we find out that Terra really was the Guardian all this time. I mean, it was kind of obvious, but I do want to say, frickin' called it. <laughs> Absolutely called that. And I know a lot of people did. And him ripping the tears off and finally reaching out to help his friends was an awesome scene, and him going against Terranord is awesome, and, you know, the reunification of Ventus, Aqua, and Terra is awesome. But I gotta be honest, it kind of pales to the reunification of Roxas, Issa, uh, excuse me, not Issa, Roxas, Lee, and Shion. That, that hit me right in the feels. And I have no shame in admitting that. Uh, Zigbar is my favorite character in the series. Aqua is number two. But Shion has always been kind of number three. And a lot of that is due to the fact that I, I can't, I can't properly express this. I feel so much empathy for her. She was kind of a mistake that was sort of mismade, specifically to be abused from the very moment of her creation. Her entire existence is a series of tragedy. To see her actually get an honest-to-God good ending was so heartwarming to me. I myself have said before Kingdom Hearts 3 came out that I thought that Shion shouldn't come back. From, from a narrative perspective, if I was writing it, I wouldn't have her come back. But as a player, I wanted her to, because, God dang, she deserved better than that. So it was really awesome to see her actually be able to, you know, have some kind of a life and come back. Even though it makes no sense that she did. I know Remind is supposed to go into that in more detail. I suppose this is a good time as any to mention something. So there's time travel in this game. That's the other big flaw. <laughs> the first I already mentioned. It's the, the scene of weird and the final world and all that fun stuff. The second is the very existence of time travel in this game. Now, I know that sounds strange, but I want to make my point here very clearly. First of all, I think it's completely unnecessary. There are plenty of other methods with established rules of the setting that they could have accomplished the same exact things without having to resort to time travel again. Second point, even though if you really twist it, it is possible for all this to make sense incongruent with the rules of time travel as established, it's... that's debatable, is how I want to finish that. I would argue that this violates the rules of time travel as previously established. And that kind of irritates me, because I was one of those people who defended Dream Drop Distance because its time travel made sense. It was fully self-coherent, and I explained that. I explained that in my rumination, I explained that during the Kingdom Hearts lore run, 
during the lead-up to Kingdom Hearts 3, I did a stream where I sat down and was like, okay, here's exactly how this works. And it all made sense. And then Kingdom Hearts 3 comes along and basically torpedoes all of it. Now I know, yes, you can twist it around to make it make sense. I don't care. <sighs> Time travel, for some reason. Time-displaced hearts being shoved into replicas. Sure. The fact that you have multiple replica bodies means you could have just ripped out a piece of your own existing full heart and put it into that. I'm just saying. <sighs> but that's okay. Because this whole section is awesome. And it leads to another awesome section. Fighting young Xehanort, Xemnas, and Ansem, the Seeker of Darkness, at the same time. I'm not sure if that's my favorite fight in the game, but it's it's in the running for my favorite fight of the game. God, I love that fight. All three of them use abilities distinctive to themselves. By coincidence, all three of them have a completely unique fighting style, which has been established because each of them has been the final boss of respective games. And uh, two of them have been optional bosses of other games, for that matter. So each of them is completely different, and they have no shame about attacking you at the same time and beating the crap out of you. It was very fun. But you know what's also even makes it even more amusing and enjoyable to me? When you take down Yun Xehanort, he is unrepentant. He's, he's evil. Evil, evil, evil. When you take down Xemnas, he's regretful. He thinks that maybe this wasn't the proper path and this was what he had to do because he had to do. When you take down Ansem, he wishes he could have been as strong as Riku, and that he feels that he knew he was wrong all along and he had no choice. They actually bother, and I'm with them on this, but somehow they managed to sympathize, make sympathy for Xemnas and Ansem the Seeker of Darkness. <laughs> but that makes sense. After all, both are merely victims of the real villain, Xehanort. I've said before that Xehanort really is a complete monster. That he is just an unrepentant, horrifying, type 4 villain. That he is the kind of person who should never be redeemed and never whitewashed and is a just a despicable being. So horrifying that he is willing to scar himself and every world and every person to accomplish his goals. And he's going to do so without hesitation. This is a man who forced himself into his own goal. I keep hammering that point. I know some people just laugh at me for there, but God's sakes, how much, how much, how screwed up evil do you have to be to deliberately manipulate your younger self into ensuring that your plans come into fruition? Which, of course, leads us to the encounter with Xehanort. The next one, two, three fights, I think it is. It's three or four. Because we fight the Twelve in Scala Ad Kylum, which I'm probably mispronouncing. And then we fight the big one, the Goat Armor, because he's the devil. Wait, you didn't catch on the symbolism? The Master of Masters, a great, powerful, omniscient being, sends off, I mean, this this, this great keyblade so that the person who is, is can start the keyblade... I mean, think about it for a second. Anyways, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting off topic. And then we have the the final fight, and then you die, and then there's the actual final fight. But I think the actual final fight's not really a fight. So I think it's three real fights. But first we have to have another complaint about the game. Kyrie, who went through all that Keyblade training and has been able to use a Keyblade since Kingdom Hearts 2 for nothing. They even had a stinger about her becoming a Keyblade Master, and it, it all comes to nothing. Nope, she's dead. Bye. 
It's okay. She's in the final world because Sora's holding on to her, which admittedly does actually make sense. But I'll get back to that. Then we fight Xehanort. We fight... We, we go to Scala Ad Kylum, which looks amazing. They go to a lot of effort of rendering, rendering a place that we basically see twice, by the way. That is actually legitimately impressive. I really hope we see more of it in the future. <clears throat> Remind, excuse me. After fighting the twelve versions of himself, which he had stolen the power of, each of them using a weapon from the real organization, we end up fighting his combined form. That was actually the hardest one for me personally. That was a brutal, unforgiving fight. You'll notice, by the way, there's no chance to heal up in between these fights. You go from the 12 to the 1 to the finale, and it's just bam, bam, bam. Which is good. But, whew. That fight, though, was so, so intense. If, if you watch my VOD of it, you'll actually see me. I was just focusing in. I wasn't even reading chat, which is extremely rare for me when I'm streaming. I love that fight. And I love that fight because, to me, that fight, the second fight against Armored Xehanort, that really showcases Xehanort at his best. Oh, yeah, sure, he's evil. Oh, sure, he's manipulative. But that man is scary good. He is the perfect combination of skill and raw strength. He is incredibly powerful, and he knows exactly how to apply it. It's part of what makes him so terrifying. Then we go to the actual final battle. We die. Our friendship helps us. We all help us. We defeat him. The end. Then something happens which has led to a lot of controversy. And as ever, love to hear your thoughts on this. Xehanort, uh... He talk so first of all, he talks about how he wanted to make a world clean and pure and all that. Thankfully, the Japanese translation has clarified what he wanted was a gray landscape that was blank, devoid of light or dark, and simply empty so that he could rule over it as a tyrant. Yeah, that sounds like Xehanort to me. Then, then after we've beaten the crap out of him three times, never mind his other selves, he still isn't willing to give up until Ericus shows up and says, come on, let's go. That kind of irritates me. Because for... It's not like he's redeemed, because he's not. Xehanort is not redeemed. This is not a whitewashing. He is still a horrific monster. The problem is his reward for all that he has done is to peacefully go on to the afterlife with his friend. And that irritates me. <sighs> By the way, really quick point, did you notice that the second chess game they set up is with the chess pieces relevant to the foretellers? You noticed that, right? So the game ends. We see a rather extensive ending sequence. Happy endings all around, which is awesome. Sora has restored Kairi at the expense of his own existence, which was foreshadowed. Multiple, multiple times in the game they make a point that if you keep using the power of awakening, it will cost you, and it appears that it does. But they get to share the pow-poo fruit, so that's something. This leads us to our final question marks, and the final theory crafting. And I basically, every one of these, I posit to you as a question. I'm going to give my own theories. But we do have a few question marks. Now, I already brought up the wild card. Subject X. We know she's female, and that's about it. She was the one who Ansem, Ansem the Wise, was experimenting on, which led to Ansem... You know, the uh, the other Ansem, Terranord Ansem, continuing experiments on her and led to some problems. We also know that that was specifically what got Issa and Lee involved in this whole mess from the very beginning. And that's kind of all we know. Now, before I move forward, can I just say that 
it is a theory that has been posited that the nameless star and subject X are actually the same entity. I don't know if I buy that personally. They feel too diverse for that. And subject X is actually mentioned a few times kind of out of context of the final world. In fact, if you remember Ansem, that is to say Ansem the Seeker of Darkness, even bothers to try and interrogate Ansem the Wise specifically about this point. You know, what's this subject X? What's going on with this? I need to know. Now, I don't have a lot of theories there. It's a little bit too vague. I have a piece of paper with like three lines on it. I, don't, I have so little to speculate from. The most I could think of, and if this is just kind of the thing that would make sense to me, would be that it's Kyrie's mother. Or, you know, someone very significant to Kyrie, like Kyrie's sister, elder sister or something like that. Probably the person who was actually supposed to be the Princess of Heart, and probably was the Princess of Heart, until these experiments, and then the power of the Princess of Heart moved on, passed on to Kyrie instead. This could also help to explain why Kyrie is never seen with her parents, I mean, I know that's a JRPG thing in general, and only her elderly grandmother instead. That's all I've got. As ever, curious of your thoughts. Which brings me to the next one. The Nameless Star. I've heard a lot of theories about who she is. The most common one I hear is that she's Ava, who is not present at the end when Zigbar reveals himself and the other foretellers show up, and would also be someone who would mention her friends. It, there's pieces of that that line up. It almost feels a little bit too obvious to me. I'm not sure if I buy into that. I will say with total certainty, I think the Nameless Star is from someone in the, the fairy tale age, the, the key age with uh, the foretellers and the master masters and all that. I'm just not sure of the specifics of her identity. As for her significance, see, that's the interesting thing, because the wild card is obviously going to be significant if it's present, because Sora's going to be able to use it in Shibuya. The subject X thing might be significant, because that's basically the beginning of a whole other plot arc, but this one, this is only going to be significant if it directly ties into the foreteller arc, which it could, and therefore... That could be its particular significance. Any thoughts and questions on that one? Now, before I move on to the next two, I want to mention something about Zigbar and that I frickin' called it. I called that for years! I, I, unfortunately, I can't really prove that in an absolute sense. If you could talk to my friends from way back in the day, uh, back when Kingdom Hearts 2 was still relatively new, and I think, was it 358 was the next one? Whatever the one after two was, it's 358 or BBS, had just come out. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think there's something going on with Zigbar. What do you mean? And that theory just kind of developed over the years. It's, it's actually, this is going to sound strange, it's very frustrating to me because every now and again a story is just badly written. And so a character seems significant or an event or a plot point seems significant and it's not because it just wasn't well constructed. But Zigbar consistently was, was something significant in every story he was in. He was always there in the background. He was always a lot smarter than he seemed to be. And he always knew a lot more than he should. And every time I'm like, God, what is going on with him? Now, I didn't call that he was Lushu. I really didn't. In fact, my big theory was that he was the master of masters. Nope, I was wrong. He's Lushu. Interesting. There's a lot of theories running around that he is going to be the next big bad, and we're going to see whatever the heck is in that box as we fight against the foretellers, or maybe with the foretellers, who knows. At this point, they could go a lot of directions with that. But it was really satisfying to see that fulfilled, because Zigbar, 
is my favorite character in this franchise, and for good reason. But I'm getting a little off topic. So after the Zigbar reveal, after everything else, we get two final things. First, hey, Viram Rex is real. This is actually something that, if you really pay attention, was kind of foreshadowed. Point number one, they had a full CGI cinematic for Viram Rex in the Toy World world. Those take a substantial amount of time, effort, and money. You don't do that if you're not going to do something with it. So, that, that was significant. Second point, if the whole point was just for it to be a joke, then it would be very easy to just use something else in its place without going that far. I mean, you could literally make it FF7-style graphics and have it be FF7 Cloud, for God's sakes. You know, PS1-style. Third, Verum Rex himself looks a whole lot like, well, frankly, like Riku. I mean, obviously he looks like uh, Noctis, excuse me. But the way he's styled and dressed reminds me more of Riku in, like, FF15 than anything else. And look where Riku ends up. Go figure. Riku, of course, is probably looking for Sora. So, that, okay. There's a lot of ways that could go. We already have multi-planar and multi-planet travel when it comes to Kingdom Hearts, so this isn't super out of bounds. It does, however, establish them as being in the same setting, which is important. Even if you hop dimensions, they still have to exist with the same overall cohesive canon. Which brings me to Shibuya. Now, I've theorized for years, and again, you can watch the lore run if you deny me this, that uh, in, as of Dream Drop Distance, and actually, actually I mentioned this during my lore run of uh, The World Ends With You, actually, I've theorized for a long time that Shibuya and The World Ends With You is canon, is part of the same setting as Kingdom Hearts is. In short, <sighs> Beauty and the Beast is not canon with uh, Kingdom Hearts. Final Fantasy VII is not canon with Kingdom Hearts. Those are separate. We see versions of those in Kingdom Hearts. But my theory was that World Ends With You was not was not being referenced in Dream Drop Distance, but was actually directly connecting, that that was the real... Uh, oh, God, I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Joseph? You know who I'm talking about. Uh, that, that was actually him the whole time, and not just an XB of him or a variant of him or whatever. Which leads to Sora ending up in Shibuya, during the Reaper's game, because he died. There is a degree of sense-making there. Although I would say that's probably... So, this is my final theory, and this is the last thing I got. And as ever, curious of your guys' thoughts and comments. I think the wild card is why he's there. I think that Luxord and his games and his overall approach and mentality would find it appealing to give Sora an out if Sora died. Not a one-up, but rather more of a chance. Okay, you died. Why don't we play a game to see if you can come back? And thus he ends up in the Reaper's game. And if Shibuya is actually congruent, you know, part of the same setting as Kingdom Hearts, then that's possible that he would have known of it and therefore be capable of giving him this thing. What do you guys think? It'll be interesting to see how incredibly wrong I am about all of this when Remind comes out and whenever the inevitable Kingdom Hearts, I don't know, Gunvolt comes out. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this game. I'll see you next time, guys. Cool.